You're listening to the Culture Drop Podcast, where we drop down below the surface and take a deep dive into the culture of your favorite art, books, music, and films. I'm your host, Jed, and in today's podcast, we continue our conversation with author and cultural critic, William Devitt. We're continuing to talk about The Clash, this time with a focus on the politics of their time that informed The Clash's lyrics and musical attitude. We're also going to be talking about the music production, how it varied between different albums like London Calling and San Manista and Give Them Enough Rope. We're going to talk about the musicianship of the band, kind of musical background did each of the members have before they joined The Clash. Recorded at Lake Monster Brewing in St. Paul, Minnesota. Great place to hang out if you're ever in town. Check it out. So, in terms of the best produced Clash album, to me, London Calling is the best produced Clash album because it's got that Bill Price kind of trebly shimmer to it. And it's got acoustic guitars and its own sonic level. Would you agree with me there? So is Sandinista and so does Combat Up. But Sandinista has got more variation. It's got dub. Combat Rock is a little more compressed to my ears. Whereas London Calling has got a, a unifying sound to it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's much more upfront than say Sandinista. Sandinista is buried under layers of just reverb and murk, general murk. Exactly, which London Calling doesn't have. And yeah, I love uh, like a dub aspect. You know, it's more bassy, but um, the murk. You know, in terms of like. My favorite album from a musical diversity standpoint, I might choose Standinista because it just shows how many styles of music the class can do. But from a production standpoint, I'm pretty partial to London Calling. Yeah, it's hard to beat, you know, Bill Price's engineering work. He's working on some of the greatest records just of that era. I mean, let's name, can we name some of them? Sure. Uh, never mind the Bullocks, there's the Sex Pistols. Isn't that interesting? That the rival with him and uh, the Chris Thomas. Uh, uh, the Tom Robinson Band's debut, uh, Power in the Darkness. Again, Chris Thomas with Bill Price. Was Chris Thomas involved with The Clash? No. He did. Chris Thomas is the producer. He's the Bill producer. Bill Price was the quote unquote engineer. engineer. Yeah. Uh, the Pretender's first album. Uh, Chris Thomas again with again, Bill and Price. that's got a, a similar kind of beautiful sonic shimmery range to it, like London Calling. To me, the hallmark of Chris Thomas and Bill Bill Price is murk. There's no shimmeriness about it. But what about London Calling? Um, it's pretty murky. Really, you think so? It's more upfront it's than. Uh, Let's see how to put this. I always think of Bill Price like with a trebly, clear shimmer. I think of it as Merck. Really? Uh, and I like Merck. I, I 
prefer it to treble shit. Yeah, London Calling is, it's very up front. Um, the drums are really loud and really up front. And on London not, Calling. On London Calling and not very compressed. The bass is really loud and really up front. Not very compressed. Um, not terribly bassy. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bill Price worked with Martha Hoople, you know, their, you know, last two albums, the same deal. Um, very, he's got a very, very distinct way with micing drums and recording drums. Um, yeah, anyway, this is, you know, kind of boring, you know, talk, but no, I don't think of his work, uh, especially his work with Chris Thomas in sort of the punk years and new wave years, as being uh, sparkly or you know effervescent, I think of the Merc of Nevermind the Bullocks or the Tom Robinson bands, uh, Power of the Darkness, or uh, the Pretenders' debut album. I don't think that's sparkly. I think it's, it's really yeah. I, I, it's, all the the tones are all mid-range to low. Okay. Um, I was thinking the, the tones was like um, emphasized on the high on Lon London Calling. Well, there's more of that than those other albums I, yeah, I mentioned. Uh, yeah. I think that's because they paid so much attention to uh, Topper's cymbals and his you know, just recording right. his drums. And again, I think that's a, a British tradition. Um, you know, studying a lot of the Beatles engineering techniques. Uh, a lot of those Beatle records, there was a lot of careful thought put into the, the limiting and the EQ range to give it a, the treble a certain tweak. Uh, and I think yeah. that knowledge had it transferred to people like Bill Price. Sure. Like well, Ten years on. Glenn John's work, you know, we, you know, worked with the Beatles. Uh, uh, yeah. The thing with London Calling as opposed to the, the, the other acts I named, you know, the Pretenders, the Pistols, uh, Tom Robinson band, is that one of the band members, the chief architects, namely Mick Jones, was getting pretty good in the studio himself by that time. That's right. He so was kind he of was, like a silent producer. He was way. directly involved. With none of those other acts, you know, had somebody in the band who knew the way around the studio. That's right. Uh, uh, certainly not the Pistols. Well, that's what Chris Thomas came in. Um, but anyway. I believe it. I never got the impression there was anyone in the Pistols who gave a toss about production. No. Well, maybe Glenn Matlock, but he was out of the band right. by, you know, by the time they recorded the album. He, he's only on Anarchy in the UK. It's the only track he plays on. Unless, like, Steve Jones over the other bass. I never, I know we talked about giving up rope a little bit. I was never a big fan of the production of that album, but you have a different opinion, right? Um, I love the album. It may be if, you know, somebody, you know, put a gun to my head or said, you know, Desert Island. Well, for Desert Island, I take San Luisa because there's more of it. Um, but it might be my favorite album. Uh, and, no, I've got problems with the mix. 
uh, not the production per se, but the mix of Sandinista. Or no, no, give enough rope. Give them enough rope. Uh, the vocals are, you know, very much buried. Apparently, <coughs> Sandy Pearlman really hated Joe's singing, so he buried him. Oh, okay. Now, he loved Topper's drumming. He just loved him. He said, you know, he's one of the best drummers he ever worked with. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, people think Topper got this great mix on Giving Enough Rope. I think that's nonsense. He, he, he's also mixed very low. The toms, Topper's toms are mixed really freaking loud. Wow. I give enough rope. I give enough rope. They're just really loud. Um, like out of whack with the rest of the drum kit or the other instruments. They compressed Topper's snare. I mean, the backbeat's a big deal in rock and roll. And how they did that? Well, okay, Sandy Perlman explained how they, 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 they double tracked the snare and ran it a reverse gate. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually, instead of a, a gate, might be like. You know, it's it's a reverb. It carries out a reverse gate would be like sucking it in. Yeah. That's the best way I can yeah, yeah, explain yeah. it. So it's very taut and very tight, almost suffocatingly tight. It sounds just tonally. I'm not talking about his performance, yeah. which is you know uniform and brilliant. Um, you like the sound of the snare. It's weird to me. To me, the album doesn't sound like 1978. You know, AOR, you know, FM, American rock radio. Uh, it does or doesn't? It does not. And does that, not. that's what they were trying to do. Yeah. I, which is ironic. Well, that's what Sandy Perlman was trying to do, yeah. And to me, it sounds weird. It sounds... So like what was his big mistake? Uh, or is it just the drums and the snare and I don't know all that, those things? I don't know that there was a big mistake. Okay. Uh, it depends on who you ask, because I think the al- I love the album. The vocals, the lead vocals, are mixed too low. Yeah. But I love all of the the Morgan of the Towers of Maria. Yeah. Can't get enough Mick Jones. Uh, the backing vocals, you know, in and out, call and response, things between Mick and Joe vocally are brilliant. Now um, I have a uh, moving back to San East, I have a theory, um, an analogy I like to in my own mind between the Clash of San Nista and the Beatles White Album. The you know, Beatles White Album was came out in November '68, and it's a double album, and it's got everything from Paul doing like 1920 songs to please his father to like the hard rock of Helter Skelter to experimental mu- ambient music like Revolution Nine, right. um, and they're kind of like breaking up uh, at that in that and recording things separately, but it was also a band at the height of their powers. You know, they've been touring. They knew how to play it. Well, I hadn't been touring. That's 68. They hadn't been touring for like three years. Well, they hadn't been touring for two years in 66. But I'm just saying, when they did tour, they had to play for hours at a time and play all different musical styles. So they were versed like The Clash in all these different musical styles. Um, and so, you know, the, the variety of musical styles on The Beatles' Wild, wow, just like the variety of musical styles on San Anista, where we're going from heavy Jamaican dub to like Motown, you know, this is just a band at the height of its powers that can switch at the drop of the hat and say, oh, let's do a Motown tune, let's do a dub reggae tune. And for me, that's why the Beatles' White Album and the Clash of Sandinista are both my favorite albums, because it's just got this band 
you know, they're confident in their power, they've established themselves, and they're just doing whatever they want in the studio. Why, why Sandinista? Why not London Calling as the comparable? Just because oh. London Calling to me seems like it's trying harder. It doesn't have the range of styles of like, uh, you know, junkies, slips or something compared to the call up. Yeah. You know, just the range of musical styles is so much broader on Sandinista compared to London Calling. It's got a unified sound. And there's not the range of musical styles that there are on Sandinista. It's a pretty stuff. broad range, though. There is. But you know what I mean. You don't have the, I'm begging with them, I'm pleading with them. You don't have Jamaican um, street vendors. Those are, are products. samples. That, right. That's, you know, pre-staging big audio dynamite. Right. But you don't um, have that on London Collins. Well, you don't have that on the White Album either. Uh, no, but you have other stuff. You've got Revolution or 9, which is, Main Street, which is samples of people talking uh, yeah, um, yeah. I wasn't trying to be uh, controversial for no for no reason. I've always not thinking just explicitly and literally in terms of double albums on vinyl. Um, I would think what are the great double albums? Uh, blonde on blonde. Uh, some people would say Quadrophania for the Who. To me, it's just no. It's it's not up there. Exile Main Street. Uh, London Calling, Springsteen's The River, uh, Beatles White Album. Time. Oh, I, I missed the White Album. That's what, <laughs> that's, that where, that, right, that's where this, right. the, the White Album, right. Uh, Sandinista is something else. Right. So, and we should mention that it might not have all been creativity driven that they did have in the record contract. They had to deliver a certain number of records. They had to take a certain amount of drugs and drink a certain amount of alcohol. Right. And so by releasing three records on San Isa, they could fulfill, was it 10 records they had to deliver? Three out of the 10, then boom, they could just knock that out. Right. Right. So that may have been part of the reason they did that. But then again, they wanted to be Combat Rock to be a double originally. At least Mick did. Uh, what, what happened there? Rap Patrol from Fort Bragg. Uh, the band was breaking up in the studio as they were recording. And they didn't have no, they didn't have no songs for Delva, double album. Yeah, they did. Oh, yeah. More than enough. Too, uh, too much. It's good enough good. good enough quality. They all came out on B-sides, and some of them were released. Two of them were released on the sound system box set. They're all over the place. Do you yeah. think that would have worked? Plus, a lot of them were longer, much longer. Yeah. If you've heard bootlegs of the original you know, mixes of a lot of the songs on the album. Yeah, well, now, I've, I've heard the, the original mixes that Glenn Johns turned in, or not, you know what? no, the original mix was not Glenn Johns. No, it was Mick Jones. Mick Jones. And I thought that was vastly inferior to what Glenn Johns did. The quality, there's, there's no good quality of the bootlegs. I mean, that's part of the problem. It you exists. You can't compare apples with apples. Mick, Mick has a copy of it, and he's Given it some buddies, and these guys are a couple of guys I know personally, you know, internet wise. And they said, No, we're not going to share it with you because Nick doesn't want it shared. But it's just musical. I know Joe went back and like redid some vocal takes and things, right? Sure. Between those two. So, just music from a musical perspective, Glenn John's mix is more powerful.
lot of the tracks are the same tracks and the same takes. The mix is different and the editing. Obviously. And there were certain songs, I don't remember which ones, you probably know, that Glenn said, you need to give this vocal another try. Yeah, no, you're right. It's the first song on the album is one. There's three yeah. different versions of that. Same backing track. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, to me, it's as it's as strong an album as Sandinista, and almost as strong as London Calling. Um, but what would it have been if it had been the double album with the longer tracks and more of them? Yeah. Uh, would it have sold as much? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's got a special place in my heart. My entry point to the clash was getting MTV and watching Rock the Casbah they video. St they still had those two songs on the album, even if it had been a double. Uh, those, you know, the mixes. Should I stay or should I go to Rock the Casbah? Right. You know? Which are great songs. And then, of course, as soon as I got into them, they broke up. Whereas you got into them much earlier, and you've got some amazing stories of seeing them live. Including the Candelabra story, which oh, you yeah. should probably recount here. The when Candelabra was, story. That was which tour and what was the date and the venue? Uh, the date was uh, September 12, 1979, St. Paul Civic Center. Right. Uh, the Dave Johansson group and the undertones from uh, Belfast, well, Derry. Were they both open? Yeah. Both, did you see them both? Oh, yeah. They're both amazing? Yeah, I had never heard the undertones before. I was already, you know, massive. That must have been incredible. New York Dolls, Johansson, you know, fan. Yeah, it was great. It's a candelabra story. It was their first, I think they did two sets of encores of two or three songs each. And they debuted uh, three songs from London Calling. World debuts because the element wasn't going to come out till December. Right? Didn't come out till December. Yeah, no one knew these songs. Uh, so there were five songs at that gig from London Calling, but three of them were debuts: uh, Coca-Cola, Clampdown, and I want to say Jimmy Jazz. Maybe Jimmy Jazz. The debut. So they Jimmy Jazz Live. Oh yeah. That's pretty cool. That was the first song of their second set of encores. But okay. for the first set of encores, they came out in Armageddon time. And they came out and it's just very, very heavy. You know, that's what the Candelabra is for? Yeah. And uh, you can hear it on the bootleg that the vocals don't start in. They play like six came out he was only with real candles, like a lit. It was like a menorah. Yeah, with the lit candles. Yeah, lit candles, yeah. And you can hear on the bootleg, you say, we, you know, we have this. What we have this for is to remind you, and then it starts in. A lot of the people, I think, suffer from Anyway. And that's, I, I just blows my mind, because I've never seen any video of him using that. Have you? <coughs> no, I haven't. I mean, I wonder if that was the only place he ever did that. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of video. No, there wasn't. Back then. So we don't... Even like, amateur videos. Do you know from, like, bootlegs if you ever whip that out again? I don't know. I've read um, about that tour, which is called uh, the Clash Take the Fifth Tour. Okay. The American name. Take the Fifth meaning Fifth Amendment. Right. You know, but 
it ended up meaning take the fifth, meaning fifth member, Mickey Gallagher from the, the Blockheads, who oh. joined on organ, um, okay. and the D3 organ, like three, three or four gigs later. Okay. New York City, the Ritz, the famous you know, gig where Paul smashed his, his bass, you know, the cover of London. Oh, okay. Um, he's on that, uh, Mickey Gallagher. So anyway, so, you know, double in time to the take the fifth gig. But uh, anyway, Mickey Gallagher wasn't that. This is the first show uh, of that tour. Uh, there was one before that. Uh, it's the first before. show of the tour? Well, there was three days they played a thing called the Tribal Stop in San Francisco, okay. which is a festival on September 8th. Uh, but this is the first proper. Uh, this is what day? September 12th, okay. 79. So anyway, that's the Candelabra story. Joe came out with Candelabra. I actually remember a lot from the show. Plus, it was my second big concert ever. You know, my first. Was first? Uh, Springsteen and the East Beat Band, Darkness of the Edge Town Tour. Wow. Uh, November of '78. And just the sheer, like the Beatles, actually, just the sheer number of millions of gigs Springsteen had played before he made it big, and how to entertain people. Oh yeah. Just like Joe did, actually, and Mick, you know, there was different bands before the clash happened. They had a lot of gigging under their belt. Well, Mick did. Joe did. The one Joe did. Yeah, they Mick. They were a pub band. Yeah, I don't know if that Mick really ever played out at all. Oh, really? The with, with, I mean, he had the, the long hair, and there's pictures of him with other bands. But yeah, the delinquents. Did they play? Yeah, maybe not. The heart drops. Uh, I don't think they actually played out really, or yeah, you know, maybe like one or two gigs. Okay. I played a whole bunch of bands just like that, one or two gigs, and you're done. Yeah. You know? And uh, then there's weird stories like Nick uh, rehearsing at his grandma's house with Chrissy Hine, and Chrissy almost joined the band, but they didn't want a woman in their band. You've heard that story. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's as clear cut as that. They're they're friends. Yeah. I think they're probably friends to this day. Uh, Chrissy went over to his grandma's house, and they definitely oh, they hung out. creatively tried to make stuff. I've read Chrissy's autobiography, and she was of the opinion that they were going to like maybe do a band together, but they didn't want a woman in the band. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's true. That, it wouldn't surprise me. They were self-mythologizing, self-mythologizing themselves from the get-go. Right. Um, so. How so? Give enough rope. Uh, I think Marcus Gray called it in uh, his first you know, book, Last Gang in Town, Mata Hoople Syndrome. You know, writing about mythologizing being a working rock and roller, you know, right. in a rock and roll band, mythologizing it, you know, making it, which to me is dreadfully boring. I love Martha Hoople. Pete Townsend did the same thing, you know, in the mid-70s, you know, 
what a drag, how hard it is to be a fucking rock star. Yeah, shut up, Pete. Um, yeah, Flash were doing that by giving him enough rope. Uh, very self-referential stuff. Right. Um, last gang in town. Um, the guns on the roof. It's a joke. I mean, it's a great song. I love it, but it's you know, it's about Paul and Topper getting busted for right. shooting racing pigeons on the roof. You know, yeah, and of course, you know, Joe turns into something else. You know, yeah. you know, the world geopolitical you know scenario of the time. But uh, uh, the cheapskates, all the young punks. Uh, these are really young guys. These are guys in their early 20s, you know, and they're all, they've only been around for you know, like a year and a half, two years. And, you know, they're already, uh... and it's a great thing. Why not? Why not do it, you know? Uh, I think about Ray, uh, Joe talking to, is it Ray Ruggange? Ruggange, yeah. In, um, Ray Gange. Ray Gange. In that movie, when they're talking at the bar, He's doing his political thing. Yeah. I wonder how like well read Joe was in any of that stuff where he's just totally just a gut reaction. I mean he's a bright guy. He's obviously you know read some stuff. He probably, you know, read a whole lot more stuff. Uh he uh, was a, a public birth. school or private school as we say in the USA. <laughs> yeah. Um, he probably read some stuff. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Uh, as far as, you know, Political theory and you know dogma and all that. I, I'm sure Bernie Rhodes, you know, encouraged and foisted a lot of shit on you know him. That's and right. Mick. He was definitely of that mindset. But they were already they're already interested in stuff. Yeah. There were guys who were interested in stuff. Yeah, they were. Um, they were interested in having an impact on the world, not just musical. Well, after a while, I, who knows how it started. You know, I mean, really, did they really, 1976, you know, set out like, we're going to, no, they were part of a scene. Who knew? I, I got the vibe from them that they wanted to change the world. That's one reason they signed to CBS. I don't think that early, they were thinking of that. They just wanted to get 77? Yeah, you know, just talk about punk rock. What does punk rock mean? What did it mean in the UK in 76? What did it mean in New York City in 76? Uh, very, very different things. Right. Ramones, it was just about um, a, a riff, like, it wasn't political with the Ramones. Yeah, but it sure. wasn't just the Ramones. It was Talking Heads, Blondie, Mick DeVille. Uh, but it was political the in the UK. Uh, yeah, political. Even if it was naive. What political is as political does. Were the Stranglers political? Uh, you know? Was Ian Derry and the Blockheads, were they political? Uh, it depends what you mean. Um, well, like, think about the Sex Pistols, like, trying to break down the belief in the monarchy. They were making it up as they went along. It was, it was a joke. It was provocative. They were the monkeys. Pistols were the monkeys, you know? They were, they were formed by Malcolm McLaren. They're right. a great band. A That's right. Great they band. weren't formed on their own. And neither was the Clash. <laughs> right. Uh, they're the Monkeys. Uh, nothing wrong with the Monkeys. The Monkeys were fucking great. Were the Clash formed by Bernie, or were they formed on their own? Mm -hmm. A little, kind bit of of both. little bit of both. Yeah. 
Bernie knew of Mick Jones and uh, was, was hanging with him when Mick Jones was trying to get the London SS together with Tony James from Generation X, Brian James from The Damned. Everybody and their brother auditioned. Rat Scabies from The Damned. Uh, uh, Paul Simonon as a singer. Uh, and they never recorded, or they recorded some boombox demos, which nobody's ever heard and probably never will. Um, and so they were working. They're, had something going on with Simonon finally as a bass player. Yeah. This is after the London SS. They weren't called the Clash yet. So it's Paul and Mick and who knows what drummer. Uh, maybe it was Terry by then or Rob Harper, John Moss, I forget. And they they knew of Joe with the 101ers. And you know, the story goes, the song, the line, yeah. For the dole, and uh, you know, Joe thought he was going to get done over, you know, beat him up and beaten up, and he, he was going to punch, you know, Mick first and try to be easier with Paul. Yeah. To Joe, you know, we, we like you, but we think your band is naff. You know, we yeah. think the one on ers are, you know, old hat. And well, you Joe dropped the one on ers he went for it. Yeah. You can see something. 48 hours, Bernie said, to respond. First, and Joe said, okay, I'm in. Right away, or he thought about it? Apparently within a day. Called up and said, all right, I'm in. Um, I don't know. There's so much... They're, they're like, they're more mythological, The Clash, than, than the Stones are. I mean, even the Beatles are, like, because everybody knows about There's just no mythology with the Beatles, to my mind. You know, I'm not the expert that you are. Uh, well, I Beatles, would disagree with that. I think the one, one of the reasons the Beatles are considered the greatest rock and roll band of all time is they have a great story. Really? And now, how is it a great story? I mean, granted, they are genuine working class guys as opposed to the Stones um, and half of the Clash, I mean, yeah. Joe and Topper. Uh, but well, um, for starters, you know, they were coming from Liverpool, which no one took seriously. No. Secondly, they were the first band ever that wrote and performed their own material. They were revolutionary in that sense. And, then, and they sustained it, um, not only their own music, but writing music for other people. Um, like The Clash, um, they didn't want to repeat themselves, and they're willing to say, this is where we're at, take it or leave it. As a band, you talked about, not as, as solo artists. As a band, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of people were doing that at the time. Um, the Velvet Underground come to mind. Frank Zappa and the Mothers come to mind. Right. But the Beatles, unlike those bands, they married a creative sensibility with um, 
a melodic sensibility that appealed both to the avant-garde and the masses. Oh, I don't know that they appealed to the avant-garde. Uh, if you want to compare them with the Velvet Underground, uh, you know, the very first song on their album, very first album, Sunday Morning. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly, uh, you know, I Heard a Call My Name or European Sun. It's a very beautiful, well-written, brilliant right. building. It's worthy of the Beatles. And uh, um, yeah, I think the avant-garde aspect of the Beatles is in the production and what George Martin was collaborating. I think, give him, I think a little too much credit. Uh, but George Martin, of course, had a musical background and a classical background and could actually translate the ideas of the Beatles, especially for arrangements and, and make it reality. So without George Martin, the Beatles wouldn't have been the same band. Um, I, as far as I know, I, that seems accurate, you know. I hate string to be arrangements, given, for example. Yeah, I hate to be given, you know, managers and producers so much credit what uh, a lot of these guys did you know it was the early days for rock and roll for pop music um, nobody knew really what they were doing they were coming from somewhere else Andrew Lou Gold I mean, he didn't know shit he thought guitar electric guitars were plugged into the wall right you know uh, but he knew something else he had some other you know qualities that brought something out of the Stones, Jag and Richards particularly. Right. That was the difference between George Martin and Andrew Logolum. Andrew Logolum was an ideas guy, but he didn't have a musical background. No. Um, but he knew a good thing when he heard it. Yeah, and an opportunity. And yeah. An opportunity, uh, you know, fresh clay to, that could be molded. And he worked, he trained under Brian Epstein, although yeah. briefly, so there's a connection there as well. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was definitely, you know, mentored by... Uh, I mean, always you know, tell Shammy, yeah, all these guys, they're all buddies and all, you know, buddies and... Uh, it makes sense. You know, I mean, that was a small scene. Yeah. Uh, England is a small that, That's a, a thing to consider, the size of the country, you know, especially when you're talking about the UK punk thing, or just say 76, you know. And when did punk really begin? Was it, you know, proto-punk before that? Well, 75, even, you know. Guys in the pistols all had long hair, including John Lydon, you know. Um, and the guys in New York City, well, some of them had long hair. Well, Richard Hell didn't have long hair in 76, Ramones had long hair. Huh? Ramones had long hair. Well, yeah, they remained. That was just you know, part of their thing that, you know, the image, the visual image that stuck uh, in the last one. Uh, and that was the big thing, was visual image for both the UK and, say, New York City. And the New York City scene in the US was vastly different from the Ann Arbor or Detroit scene in Michigan or Akron, Ohio, in, you know, or Cleveland, I mean, and that's or actually, Minneapolis. That's a difference between the UK bands and American bands, because a lot of the Brits came out of an art school tradition, including Paul. Um, they knew how to package themselves in terms of each album cover looking different and having its own kind of marketing visual package to go around the music. That's interesting that you mentioned the art school tradition, which is, you know, for British rock and roll. 
か。Especially in contrast with, say, the New York City bands, first wave. Those guys were all—they were all serious art, artists and art students. That's Whereas,、right. art school in Britain, as I understand it, is a joke. It's a joke. Like nobody did anything. I mean, you know, Boston. You know, he makes his living as an artist. You were basically going to art school to meet musicians. Right. You weren't going there to be a royal artist. Exactly. Whereas the guys in you know, New York City—they actually were. You know, they were in with the Warhol. And, and the more artistic New York City bands, like <laughs> Talking Heads, definitely did have artistic covers,、um, uh, and they came out of RISD, which was an art school. Yeah, yeah. Now the, the Ramones, they played up to what they really were, which were schmucks from Queens, right? Or the Heartbreakers, you know, Johnny Thunders. They really, you know, they didn't have to go for any image. They they really were you know,、yeah. semi-gangsters. Various boroughs, you know, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx. Oh, you know, the Dolls.、Uh, although the Dolls were, their whole idea was art. Well, it's a joke. It's a joke. Let's dress up in there. And you can't separate the two. You know, whenever you ask Mick Jones his biggest influence, <laughs> the first words out of his mouth are New York Dolls. Sure. <coughs> Thing with.、Uh, you no. Know, so it's like this transatlantic threads. Uh, it's hard to separate it by country because of all those bands that influenced Mick were American bands, and the socio-economic, the class system of the two nations, or the nation meaning the UK versus we'll just say New York City, which is、yeah. you know, a very small city compared, but it's huge, which is a country in its own way. The, the you know the class system, the social class systems are are so different.、Um, You know what is middle class in in the UK back then, and probably you know to this very day now,、uh, vast varies vastly from what we consider middle class in the, U- in the United States.、Uh, you know, how how would you put it?、Uh, well, you've lived in the UK. I mean, shit.、Uh, Well, one of the well, biggest differences is we just have more money. One of the biggest differences is the class system is real for capital R in England. You know, you're born into a class, you're expected to stay in that particular class, whereas everyone has the possibility and perhaps the illusion that class here is a plastic, mutable thing that mutable you, can, you can move out of. Of course, that's a lie. That's a, that in itself is a myth. I believe. Uh, uh, but that definitely、US. informs the music、uh, of the Clash, you know, which is coming from a working class perspective. Even though, you know, Mick was definitely working class. Oh, Mick and Topper. Joe kind of wasn't. Topper's parents of, were both teachers. Okay, Joe came from son of a diplomat.、Uh, yeah, he's a low level. Worked with the Foreign Office.、Uh, yeah, you know, you could say maybe lower upper warmer, class. Definitely. Yeah, we, he was. Yeah, that would be well. I don't know if that's upper middle class or back then. 
He's, he's born, definitely not working class. Let's, let's put it that right. Way. Right. Until, you know, he, later he certainly was when he was living in squats and yeah, but he that put was his money choice. where his mouth was. Right. I'm I'm from a middle class family. I've been like, poor all my life. So that right. was my choice. Some. Well, you're making a life choice, an artistic choice, and that's kind of what Joe did. I thought I was back then. Yeah, I haven't had the success of Joe Strummer. But anyway, never mind about me. But that's definitely a privilege that. The middle classes, as we'll say, in the U.S. or the U.K. have. Thanks for listening to today's Culture Drop podcast. We've been discussing the music and the politics of The Clash with William Devitt. This is a multi-series podcast, and we will continue with part three next time.